Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid and today we're discussing viral infections and asthma with Dr. Peter Walk. Good morning, Virginia. How are you? Very well, thank you. And I trust you're well? I, I am, thank you, yes. You, you presumably know how to prevent the common cold, is this correct? Uh, unfortunately not. <laughs> um, if only uh, we could, but um, no, no, it's, um, it's a difficult thing that, that um, at best you can't avoid. But you've done some interesting research over the years. Just give us a bit of background of how you've come to be where you are today and, and your knowledge in as paediatric asthma, particularly in viral infections. Um, well, we, um, we started um, having an interest in viral respiratory infections and how they may worsen asthma and other airways diseases, probably going back nearly 10 years now when we, we first looked at doing some studies in adults and children who presented to John Hunter Hospital in the emergency room with worsening of their asthma. And we were among some of the first groups to clearly demonstrate that both children and adults who presented to the emergency room, the trigger for their asthma worsening was generally a, a viral respiratory tract infection um, with a common cold virus as one of the most important viruses to have done this. After doing this work, we, we collaborated with um, uh, some people in the United Kingdom, um, particularly Sebastian Johnston and Stephen Holgate, and, and that led me to do some postdoctoral um, work over in the United Kingdom with um, both of those um, people. When I was there, we developed a model of um, human bronchial epithelial cells, so the cells that line the respiratory tract, and we then infected them with various viruses, predominantly the common cold virus or rhinovirus. During that time, we, we determined that cells from subjects with asthma were particularly susceptible to the effects of infection with the common cold virus or rhinovirus. The virus grew very well on these cells as opposed to the cells from people who had no asthma and the cells themselves did not appear to recognise the virus particularly effectively. We determined that the reason for that was that they had a deficient antiviral response. They were unable to produce a protein called interferon beta, which is a crucial protein to limit the extent of infection that results from a viral infection. And so the asthmatic cells could not produce these antiviral proteins. The virus was able to replicate very well and grow and therefore spread to other cells. And that would then lead on to a fairly intense inflammatory response. So this is mainly in people who have asthma? These studies were all done in people who had established history of asthma, yes. Right, or their cells at any rate. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, we but it applies clinically as well in that you've extrapolated that model to the clinical model. Well, we took it one step further, in fact, and got volunteers who had oh. asthma mm -hmm. and we then infected them mm -hmm. with common cold virus and we found that they also had a deficient response in these interferons and those who had the lowest response in interferons were less able to handle the virus well, they had more virus grow and they had more severe symptoms in their lower respiratory tract such as cough, worsening of their breathing, worsening of their lung function. And did it depend on whether these people had been treated for a long time for their asthma with steroids and that sort of thing? This seemed to occur in people who had been using steroids and in people who had not been using steroids. It and the response was not dependent on that? The lack of response to virus? No, it wasn't solely dependent on that. They're, they're quite was there a correlation at all? 
Well, the numbers were probably not big enough to determine differences like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and given that the severity of the, of the asthma also varied, so those who had more severe asthma, of course, tended to be on higher doses. Yes, exactly. Hmm. There was certainly a relationship, but, or there appeared to be a relationship, hmm. but we were unable to determine that clearly. Mm, it's just I'm getting at the fact that, I, you know, the, the human is not a static thing and presumably the more of the steroids you give, the less they are likely to respond to a viral load because that's what the steroids do. It's always been somewhat of a concern that the steroids, obviously, by toning down the mm. immune system, they mm. also, of course, tone down the body's ability to fight infection. Mm-hmm. Um, conversely, though, the, the most important thing is that by having good control of your asthma, you probably have less severe acute asthma when you do develop a, a viral infection. So some inhaled steroids is certainly better than none if you do have asthma, mm. and that's probably by controlling your asthma. Better. There's also some work recently that has led to some concern that high doses of inhaled steroids might increase the risk of, of pneumonia and other complications mm. as well. And so it, it's a complex issue which I think still needs further study. Is that the example in older patients or is that the paediatric example as well? It's much more difficult to see a relationship in paediatrics because, of course, these sort of complications are far rarer and far fewer mm. children get pneumonia. Mm. But there has been some recent work um, where the uses of very high doses of inhaled cortisone um, in people with, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or smoking-related lung disease does appear to be related to an increased risk of pneumonia. Mm. So where then did your research lead? Well, we still are currently um, developing that further and we've certainly got an active interest in this area now that I've, I've come back to, to John Hunter Hospital and um, uh, the Hunter Medical Research Institute and we're hoping to explore further why this um, defect develops in people with asthma and also smoking-related lung disease. So we really want to see whether um, there are a different uh, stimuli that may they cause this um, poor response in the interferons and we're also very interested to see if we can change that and increase interferon mm. um, released by asthmatic cells so that they could um, then better fight off these viral infections. Mm-hmm. And do we know what increases the interferons that fight off the viral infections? Do we have any inkling about that? Um, unfortunately at the moment the only way we've been able to, um, to improve the outcomes is by actually treating people with interferons and we're currently um, undergoing some, some studies to see how uh, how unsuccessful this would be as a treatment. Um, unfortunately, administering interferons mm. is difficult and also has side effects and is expensive as well. And the ideal would be a, a, a way to, to be able to stimulate response from, from these mm-hmm. cells without directly having to give these, um, these proteins. Mm. I practice complementary therapies quite a lot, and I'm just wondering if any of the interventions that... For example, I'm a GP as well. A lot of my patients come and say, since I've been seeing the naturopath, I'm a lot better off. And the sorts Mm. of things that they're using are things like fish oils, probiotic, you know, fish oils in order to try and um, change the omega-3-6 balance um, in kids, probiotics, um, you know, a really good diet so that they're getting all their antioxidants, the vitamin C, E, A. What, What do we know about those and how they influence interferon? Well, we know relatively little about how they would directly influence interferons. Having a, a good diet, which is, is rich in vegetables and, and has good balance of antioxidants, however, may well be very helpful in the case of asthma. Mm. Um, and there certainly is some work that, um, that diets low in these, um, in, in these factors um, and low in antioxidants may actually increase difficulties associated with asthma. Um, 
there's some work going on at the moment at HMRI that we're collaborating with Dr. Lisa Wood on um, looking at um, changes in diet and very high fat, high glycemic diets that um, may predispose people with with um, asthma to, to have viral infections. Very so let's just give an example of those so people can understand what we're talking about. Well, the, the sort of standard takeaway sort of meal, in, in fact, it's more or less... What people keep pinning takeaway. A lot of people say to me, I don't eat takeaway. But in fact, when you ask them what do they buy at the supermarket, they talk about the muesli bars topped with the yogurt, you know, and they talk about their high, high sugar yogurts, etc. So this yes. word takeaway really, really confounds people. Yes, I mean, uh, th this is all very preliminary sort of work, but there, there's good evidence that a lot of highly processed, high-fat um, and, um, and low-fibre um, low foods with, mm -hmm. with high glycemic index mm -hmm. may well contribute to poor asthma control. Mm. Um, certainly, uh, antioxidant balances are very, very important in the body's ability to fight infection and signal when that infection is there. Mm -hmm. um, manipulating that is a little bit more difficult. Mm. Um, there have been studies that have looked at specific um, uh, antioxidants um, such as vitamin C, mm -hmm. um, but unfortunately they've, they've not shown any, any significant benefit, mm. um, although admittedly a lot of those studies have in fact been done in people who, um, who don't have asthma and mm. therefore uh, you're dealing with a, a common cold infection which is at best is, is mostly a nuisance of mm. uh, value, um, whereas the, the group who've got more severe mm -hmm. sort of effects are clearly those who've got pre-existing asthma. Mm, absolutely, um, and the other problem is that if you use bioflavonoids as well, you know, in a complex, there are certain of the other bioflavonoids that are far more anti-inflammatory than your standard vitamin C that you just get at, at, at Coles. So, you yeah. know, I think there's an area where we probably need to do a lot more research because the side effects, is particularly in the paediatric population, are relatively few. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Dr. Virginia Reid, and I'm speaking to Dr. Peter Walk about asthma, particularly in the paediatric population. So, Peter, what at the moment are you researching? As I mentioned, we're particularly interested in um, exploring mechanisms of, um, of viral infections, how people with asthma or smoking-related lung disease are particularly susceptible to this infection. Mm -hmm. um, we're wanting to understand better how this um, deficient protein production from the interferons occurs mm -hmm. and we're looking very closely at some of the, the, the cell's abilities to signal um, and either switch on or switch off these interferons. Mm -hmm. um, we also have an interest in influenza, both avian and, um, and human influenza, and looking at um, differences between these viruses, their ability to infect humans and also the susceptibility of people with, um, with asthma and COPD to these infections. They're far less common, though, as triggers, aren't they, in children particularly? Um, well, influenza certainly does cause um, serious infections in children, which mm -hmm. is, of course, very seasonal, and, and this time of year, actually, is um, particularly the case. Mm. Um, so particularly it, this year. Yes, I mean, yeah, indeed. Um, it varies from year to year, mm -hmm. um, and generally, most years, influenza certainly causes a, a significant infection, but doesn't doesn't cause a, a serious problem for children who are otherwise healthy. It, of course, can cause very serious infections for children with underlying heart or lung disease, um, and to an extent asthma as well, where it is an important trigger for acute asthma. I suppose we should ask, therefore, what, what's the cutoff level for getting the flu vax if your child has asthma? It's much more difficult to know uh -huh. um, exactly <laughs> where the value of the flu vax lies. Uh -huh. um, 
and I mean, in general, in asthma, it's certainly recommended um, for people with established asthma, but, but the evidence to support that is, is somewhat less clear. Certainly those over the age of 50 seem to benefit the most, but of course they're the group who are um, at most at risk of complications from influenza as well. Um, so it, at, at this stage, while we would recommend it, certainly in people who've got difficult asthma or who are known to have problems with asthma, even in children, it, it's difficult to really recommend it broadly across, um, across the whole population. Mm, so you're looking more at children who, are, who, who take regular doses of steroids, yes? Um, I think you'd have to take that on a case-by-case basis. Right, um, and presumably they'll have a respiratory physician anyway and uh, know yeah. and, and be able to ask them. Yeah, I mean, mm. if, if they've got... But mild to moderate, you wouldn't necessarily use the flu vac, or you'd have a, a, a long discussion before you used it. Generally, no. I mean, for most children under those circumstances, it's, it's not clear that they would see a substantial benefit from a flu vaccine. Mm. There's a new treatment, or no, it's been around for a long time, Monty Lucast, and uh-huh. I'd read, I think, that it, it, it decreased the need for, for steroids. Um, I know initially it wasn't really touted to be a very effective treatment for asthma. What's your opinion of it? Um, it belongs to a class of anti-inflammatory drugs called the leukotriene receptor antagonists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a rather complicated name for modifying a pathway that cortisone and, and, and the typical as- anti-asthma medications modify, but without quite so many of the side effects. Um, unfortunately, it, it, it hasn't been nearly as promising as, as we would have hoped when it first um, came out. Um, it's not as effective as low-dose inhaled cortisone as you get with either flixotide or cormacort and, um, and, or becotide. Um, and it's not as good at preventing or it's not as good as tre- at treating? Well, it's not as good at preventing and mm-hmm. there's very little evidence um, to support its use in treating acute asthma. Oh, There's yeah. a little bit of evidence, but it, it's it's not particularly good. Right. And still, the best treatment for someone who has a serious acute worsening yeah. of their asthma is a short course of oral corticosteroids or prednisone. Yes, but I thought that the studies showed that if you took Montelukast on a regular basis, you needed less of those sort of drugs. Yes, that is true. It probably isn't as effective, though, as using a low dose of inhaled cortisone in the form of either becotide or fixotide. Or even, even looking at the side effects and risks of so doing on children's health, etc., and perhaps even down-regulating their, their viral response, which is what yes. you studied, presumably, in England. Yes, that's, that's very true. Um, now, I mean, using a low dose of inhaled corticosteroids seems to be the best way of controlling symptoms of moderate to severe asthma, if we're talking specifically in children. Yes. Um, provided we're using a low dose, which is a minimal, the minimum amount that we need to control this. Mm-hmm. So using that will reduce the number of times people will have an acute worsening of their asthma. Mm-hmm. It will also reduce the severity of those acute worsenings of their asthma as well and reduce the need to use um, uh, relieve the medications such as Ventolin, prevent them from going to the emergency room. Mm. Um, and the use of those low doses in that group of patients mm. has been shown not to be associated with adverse effects that have been long-standing. Right. But in that group of patients with established asthma who've got more difficult or persistent symptoms. Mm. Yeah, so it's again a matter of balancing for the individual. It is, and I mean it does matter quite considerably as to the age of the younger person as well. So right. it, it gets a lot more difficult to, to know the answer to these questions in, in fairly young children, particularly less than um, five to six years old, 
Whereas as you get closer to adolescence, persistent symptoms consistent with asthma, the use of low-dose inhaled steroids on a regular basis does seem to be clearly the, the most beneficial treatment for these people. So in terms of the antiviral treatments? Well, we have no specific antiviral treatment that, that we would recommend or that has clearly been shown to improve outcomes in acute asthma. Mm-hmm. Um, we only have, of course, a handful of antiviral agents that are readily available. Um, and, of course, they're somewhat difficult to get hold of. Um, Tamiflu or Oseltamivir um, is, is one of those for influenza, but you need to take it within um, three days of developing symptoms of influenza for it to be effective. Um, there are agents that are effective against the common cold, but they're relatively expensive, and at the moment it hasn't clearly been shown that they, that they will benefit people, although, again, those studies have mostly been done in, in fit well people rather than in, in mm. people with asthma. Um, and so it, it really, I think, the, the groups that are most at risk of developing problems, such as asthma or, or chronic obstructive lung disease, are probably the groups that would benefit most from these agents. But again, you have to administer them fairly early in the illness to prevent the inflammatory consequences that they would then cause. Yeah. In the common cold, in healthy people, it has been shown that both echinacea, zinc and vitamin C shorten the duration of the cold. And uh, I'm wondering, and the severity of the illness, I'm wondering if there's any data in people with asthma. Um, there's very limited data in asthma, but the, um, the, the Cochrane systematic review that looked at these agents also didn't clearly show a, a particularly large benefit um, across the board. And, and This was for people without asthma, yeah? That was for people mm-hmm. both But we do know that from your research yeah. that people with asthma do have a problem with viruses, so if we can boost their immunity, their interferons, surely we're giving them an advantage. Well, it, it may be, but I guess it mm. needs to be established. It does, yeah. That's, that's, that sounds like a good, good thing to do to me. It'd <laughs> be nice if somebody would do it. I guess it can't, doesn't sell too well, though. The drug companies don't pick those sort of things up and run with them, do they? You have to actually alter in molecule times two, apparently, to patent it, so uh, you can't have it in its natural state. Mm-mm. Right. I'm speaking with Dr Peter Walk about asthma and its link with viral infections. So, Peter, in the future, what can we see, do you think? Are these interferons administered via aerosol, like the Ventolin and the steroids? Well, yes, we certainly can deliver them via aerosol, um, at least via a um, a nebulizer-type device. Um, And we can get reasonable lung deposition, and we can appear to deliver them safely, at least this is in adults. The side effect profile is something that that still needs to be worked out, though. Um, The the idea would be to deliver a a small enough dose that they would do the job, but not a large enough dose that they would start to cause symptoms. Because, unfortunately, one of the the most prominent side effects of these agents is they make you feel like you've got a cold. Yeah, that wouldn't be too handy. But I suppose if it prevents the actual asthma and the, the need to use... I mean, if you've got a cold, you can still go to school, whereas if you've well, got severe asthma, yes. you're not going to school. Well, that's very true, and, and, and I think this is really one of the key areas that um, it, it's very difficult to market um, or to something that, that at best would only uh, cure a, a nuisance value of an illness, um, whereas if you're talking about an illness mm. um, that can put people in hospital, mm. um, can lead them to have to use high doses of oral cortisone, um, this is something that's mm. important to try and intervene on. And this would, of course, be the group that we would particularly be interested in targeting. Mm, absolutely. And apart from those side effects that they feel like they've got a cold, is there any other nastier sort of side effects that you can 
uh, extrapolate, I suppose, because you really haven't had a chance to use it in we, a, the we, general, a large population for a long period of time yet, have you? We, um, not specifically as it pertains to asthma, though interferons are given for a number of other illnesses, specifically multiple sclerosis and hepatitis C infection. Right. And they're given in fairly large doses mm-hmm. and they're given systemically or mm-hmm. orally mm-hmm. or intravenously. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and they do unfortunately have a, effects on the immune system. Mm-hmm. Um, they do cause a, a, quite a considerable number of side effects, mm-hmm. such as muscle aches and pains, low-grade fever, um, and do increase the risk of susceptibility to other infections. So. Mm. So they, they, and of course they are quite expensive as well. Mm. Um, so these are all major barriers to be able to get something across to, to a problem which is really very commonplace and can affect um, uh, nearly um, 15 to 20% of all asthmatics and of course anywhere between 1 in 10 adults and, um, and, and 1 in 5 children in Australia of course may well be susceptible to this. So we, we would have to give, give them an effective treatment with few side effects um, that would be of significant benefit to a very large group of people. And um, I think we're still, unfortunately, quite a way off being able to achieve that. Mm. I suppose, though, if you know specifically what it is, you've targeted specifically what it is that these people lack that makes them more susceptible to the virus? Yes, I, I think that if we could work out a way of stimulating the body's own cells to be more efficient at recognising mm. the virus and then producing mm. um, these type 1 interferons um, mm-hmm. and doing that either regularly or delivering that in a way that you would deliver your normal mm. preventive treatment for, um, for asthma, mm. I think that that really would be the most effective way to, to do things um, and perhaps giving the, um, the interferons directly will be less um, agreeable than being able to deliver them in that sort of a way. And have we looked at any of those interventions yet? Um, well, we're looking at the pathways, um, but there's really quite a number of different pathways mm. that are involved, and um, at the moment it's, a, it's an area of active, um, active research interest by us and a number of, um, of centres, but at this stage, unfortunately, we don't have anything that we'd, we'd, be, able to, um, we'd be able to take to, to patients, yes. Mm. So you're actually looking at the biological pathways? Yes. The, right. The different ways that the cell signals the presence of the virus mm-hmm. and then the different ways that the cell is able to... Um, to cause the release of these interferons as a consequence mm. of that. Yeah, so the various coenzymes, etc., involved and why these people may have a particular deficiency. Yes, yes, mm. particularly um, uh, receptors within and outside of the cells that recognise mm. the presence of these foreign agents mm. and, um, and then um, uh, allow the body to respond in an effective way. Mm. Of course, those are in part genetically determined, aren't they, in terms of the enzymes, etc., that you code up from your DNA? Yes, there certainly is almost uh, an important genetic background to this, but mm-hmm. um, we have found this the defect present in, across the board in a large group of asthmatics, right. and that would suggest actually that to some extent this is an acquired phenomenon, so that some exposure, be that either poorly controlled asthma in the long term or exposure to different infections, um, either in childhood or, um, or in adulthood, may well lead you to not be so efficient at producing these interferons. Mm. And if that is the case, then this is, of course, something that is at least potentially mm. preventable. Mm. Exposure to, I'm sorry, I didn't, didn't catch, what, exposure to what may predispose you? Well, but, but that's really an important question. And, oh. and of course, this is, no, we, we, we know that there's been changes in the um, epidemiology of asthma over time. Mm, um, absolutely. Really in the last 50 years, exposure to pollutants mm-hmm. is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly ozone, um, uh, fine particulate matter that you get from car exhaust, 
all mm. of these factors can act as um, cofactors with infection mm. to worsen the asthmatic problems and worsen mm -hmm. the inflammation associated with asthma as well. Mm. Um, some things, of course, are protective, or they seem to be protective in um, early childhood, such as exposure to um, farm animals, um, farming environments, and certain infections seem to protect you against asthma. And so these things are all potential things that could work on the airways to either switch on or switch off the ability of the airways to deal with these infections. I suppose that's where the information has come from around probiotics. It's, that's certainly a very interesting area, actually, and mm. it does relate to this whole um, field of um, certain bacteria perhaps being being better at allowing the body's natural immune systems to detect those those pathogens that are um, a particular threat, such as mm. viruses or other bacteria, mm. um, whereas exposure to other infections probably is detrimental, such as um, uh, measles and, um, and um, hepatitis. What about the vaccinations for those? Um, it's less clear, um, although childhood vaccination is, is almost certainly not related to the increasing prevalence right. we've seen with asthma. Right. Um, and so while there, there have at times been concerns raised about that, there, there has not been any evidence that has shown a link, a link with that. And of course many of these, these childhood illnesses are, are in their own right very, very severe and mm, cause absolutely. very severe problems and, and are best avoided. Um, I'm just wondering about the epidemiology, if anybody's looked at that. It's complicated because when, of course, we've had all these vaccination programs going through, we've, we've also had um, quite profound changes in our society as well. Yes. Um, and as we've developed more of a Western society with, with all of its trappings, um, be that cars, fast food. Um. Well, I don't know if you've ever milked a cow and drunk the milk from it, but generally speaking, if you're not very good at it like I wasn't, the cow flicks its tail, which has got dung on it, into the milk, and then you, you know, you do, you do, you know, boil the milk and things, but um, often you drink it fresh, and it's a totally different taste mm. and look to to your regular. Now, not that I'm advocating <laughs> advocating that as a prevention for asthma, but I do see the place of probiotics because the way we, you know, the milk that you get in your your refrigerator section does not resemble very closely the milk that comes from the cow, from what I can gather after it's been, you know, sterilised, pasteurised, etc. That's right. It's um, I, I mean, it, it's a lot of really important factors, and, and mm. of course, there's been some recent work done, um, even in Western countries such as Germany, where where children who um who have grown up on farms mm. who have lower prevalences of asthma. Um, of course, it's a bit of a complicated issue as mm -hmm. well, um, and um, and and of course, there are illnesses that are that are associated with um, livestock that are fairly severe for children, and and mm. the risks of um, tuberculosis yeah. and scrofula are rather unpleasant as well. So. Absolutely, yes. If you're an African child, I wouldn't imagine that living with livestock would make your life any. No. <laughs> Less problematic, exactly. No. Well, it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you very much for your time. And we hope that now that you're back in Newcastle, we get on with a bit more of the research that shows us what causes us to increase our ability to withstand things like viruses. We're certainly very determined to, to keep going with the work here and we're, we're greatly helped by the university and um, HMRI, which yes. is, have been real assets, I think, for the development of um, this sort of research in, um, in Newcastle. I so, couldn't agree yeah. more. And the Newcastle people are, are generally speaking right behind it, which is wonderful. Yes, we're, we've always received fantastic support, of course, be that from volunteers um, or, of course, from the community. And, um, and that really is vital if this sort of work is to continue. And so are you. Thank you very much for your time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your interest. Bye-bye.
Virginia. I've been speaking to Dr. Peter Walk, respiratory physician at John Hunter Hospital and researcher with HMRI. Thank you very much to my production staff and to our listeners. All of us here at Wellbeing would like to say we wish you well.